Hey everybody, I'm Anna McEwen. And now for Bob Switzer with the epic narrative. Oh my goodness. This is so exciting. A third season, a third season. I cannot well, I, I can. I'm I'm gonna tell you a little bit. So this season has unfolded like none of the others. Of course, there's only been two others, but let's just let's just make it sound dramatic. It has unfolded like none of the others. My life has turned crazy upside down. And if you followed me at all, you know that we uh we walked away from an amazing job and an amazing house and sold everything and hit the road with an RV and Man, it's just been one adventure after another, and along the way, I had to prepare for season three. I had to figure out times to study, times to take notes and read. Oh my goodness, the reading we had to, I had to do. Well, I say we, like me and Bob were involved. <laughs> hey, Bob, say hi to everyone. Bob is waving because, you know, he always accompanies me because he is me, but that's okay. We'll just pretend that he's real and... uh and periodically interrupts my my train of thought. So we just we've done a lot. It's been a incredible time once again looking at the book of Exodus from a new perspective that says God is good. And I do know. I know for a fact that this really freaks people out. And the book of Exodus is a wonderful example of an opportunity to go into this whole concept because once again, so many people have approached the Old Testament with this idea that God was really mean back then, but then he got really nice when Jesus showed up. And that's because Jesus you know, died on the cross and shed his blood, and he sets up this barrier between you know, the angry God and the sinner, and Jesus is like the good guy who keeps his father at bay through because God now can only see us through the blood of Jesus, and somehow, you know, also is interactive with us and Holy Spirit is flying back and forth. Anyways, it's, if you know me and you've listened to me at all, you know that that is something that we constantly go after, that we look at God as being consistent with the life of Jesus. Jesus was the picture of God on earth. Jesus is perfect theology, and we approach the Old Testament from that perspective. And so it involves a lot of study and a lot of breakdown of words and a lot of typical academia, but I believe it was written as a story, and so we're going to continue the story this week. <laughs> this week. You are now listening to the first episode of season three, the book of Exodus, and I know that Exodus does not cover all the stories of the Exodus, like, uh, honestly, like I kind of thought. There were times when I was, as I, you know, as I was reading the scripture over and over again, the first time through, I got done with the book of Exodus and I was like, wait, where, where are all the other stories? Because I honestly thought so many of these stories were in the book of Exodus, but they're not. They're covered again or in more detail. Things are covered in, you know, Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Um, so we'll get to that when. Oh, that would be season four. But uh, wait, let's get done with season three first. I mean, we got at least at least a dozen episodes, maybe even close to 50 by the time we're done, but we're not sure how it all, how, you know, all I got is notes. I don't know what it's going to look like as far as uh, time it takes to record these things. It could, they, these could be short ones. They can be long ones. Only time will tell. So Exodus chapter one, 
Verse 1. Here we go. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Remember, now you have to remember season 2. Uh, Joseph invited his family down. He he and, and they came down. So these are the these are the brothers, right? Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. So 70 relatives, 70 direct descendants showed up in Egypt uh, at the invite of Joseph. Now, uh, let's see. Plus Joseph's connection. Oh, yeah. So this was the tribe. These were the tribes and nation. Now, while they lived in Egypt, they flourished. They exploded, and we see this. Now, Joseph and all his brothers and all the generation, all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. So let's let's go through that for a moment. They lived in Egypt as immigrants, as outsiders. Remember, Joseph brought them down, put them in the, in the Delta region of the Nile. He he gave them authority over the livestock that was all collected from literally the nations of the world that were trying to avoid famine. They sold all their livestock or traded it, if you want to talk about it that way. They traded it to Egypt in order to feed their people. And in trading it to Egypt, they, somebody had to take care of them. Well, Joseph was moving. The, the, the people of Egypt were, be, were being moved from one storage city to another storage city. And as they moved them around from one city to another, cities would become completely empty. So this particular city in the Delta region of the Nile is where they where the the 70 relatives came to um, start. And they just expanded and expanded and they filled the land. Now, it doesn't mean they filled all of Egypt. It just means that they filled that region. That region became became known as, you know, immigrant city, so to speak, the outsider city. Egyptians did not like the Hebrews. You remember that also from season two, where we talked about the fact that Joseph literally had to tell his brothers, this is what you need to say. Don't tell them that you are, that you run livestock because, because they already don't like you, right? He literally had to uh, uh, filter. What do I want to say? Oh, shield. Thank you, Bob. He had to shield uh, the Pharaoh from knowing the true nature of the uh, talents and gifts of the of his family because they didn't like him already. They were outsiders, and they stayed that way. They were very conscious. The, the 70 were very conscious that, that they stay as a family. They, they maintained this mindset that they were not supposed to be there long term, that their goal was to survive the famine and then leave. Joseph, I mean, I, you, have to, you have to wonder what, what, what went on. Did Joseph intend his family to stay until the end of the famine and then leave? Did he actually intend for them to stay there as long as they did and take over Egypt? Like, was that in the back of his mind? Like, if we multiply, like, this could be the promised land. Remember, I, uh, Abraham understood that this covenant was about the multiplication of the family, not 
the military might of the family. So did Joseph understand that? And was he thinking, listen, we need to keep having babies, which is why they did. They they had, it says that they multiplied and they flourished, which is just heaps upon heaps, which is very counter to the culture of Egypt. Egypt was one or two children. That was it. And actually Joseph followed that as well. He had one wife and two children, and that was it. Now in Egypt, they had multiple wives, but not a lot of children. So, so Joseph... Joseph uh, kind of towed the line. He kept the Egyptians comfortable with his lifestyle, even though he wasn't full-on in the Egyptian lifestyle. He looked like one, he talked like one, and he clearly protected them all. They understood what Joseph did was save their nation. They understood that. But the, the Hebrews, meanwhile, are back in the Delta, and they're like, we need to expand ourselves to become a nation— and Joseph has given us this opportunity, not just given us uh, you know, food to eat, but literally brought us to a place of wealth, put us in charge of things that bring us wealth. And, and, and by that, we have influence. And by that, we have freedoms. And those freedoms allowed them to multiply in ways that they, they weren't able to do, even in the promised land up until that point. All right, so... The, sorry. Wow. All right. What's what's the next verse, Bob? Oh, then a new king whom whom to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. Now some versions say who didn't know Joseph. Uh now when uh all right, back up a little bit. When the, <laughs> sorry. There's a lot there's a lot here to talk about. Uh especially because it sets us up for the rest of the book. So so pay attention because you're going to need some of this information as we move forward. And some of the information you won't need because, frankly, I just give you too much information sometimes. And we all understand that. And sometimes Bob actually, you know, he nods off in the in the uh, director's chair over there. He's just kind of snoozes because he's like, oh, my gosh, this guy won't shut up. Anyways, uh, I'll continue. Um, when the Hebrews are expanding and... Uh, of course, running the running the livestock and running flocks, they're they, you know they're having interactions with with Egyptians. They're having lots you know lots of uh, opportunities in the marketplace. They're connecting with with traders and trade routes and people who are in charge of these sort of things. They're they're making all of these connections, and that all brings again increased influence. But it also gives them inc- increased exposure to foreign nations. And some of those nations have, shall we say, interesting women to marry. And I'm not saying that they were immodest or rude or anything like that, but but a young a, a young Hebrew uh, boy who's who's getting ready for you know finding a mate or a man who's single who's looking for a wife, like it wouldn't be unusual for them to be interested in a in a pretty girl. Like it's or or interested in, main, in maintaining connection, a deeper connection to a particular trade uh, organization or a, a city or a nation that they're working with regarding their livestock, it wouldn't be unusual for them to want to increase the influence and be willing to marry one of their people in order to maintain that influence, in order to deepen the connection, in order to put a bloodline between them. All of this would have been culturally normal for them to do, 
and something that would have been expected by everybody else in the in the world. So when they would want to do this, this is where the relatives of of Joseph would come in, where the 12, uh, 11 other brothers uh, and, you know, the uh, at the time, Isaac and, you know, if he was still alive, like, like just people in the know would be like, they would hold that boundary really hard. You cannot intermarry because that was one of the commands that, you know, that, that, um, that Abraham understood the Lord to give. Like it's, you need to, you need to build the nation from within the family. You remember that even Abraham at the, at the end of his life, when he was getting ready to hand everything over to uh, Isaac, he got rid of all his other wives and all the other children that, that he had had born to him through those wives. He basically paid them all off to leave. Why? Because he was like, I can't have any confusion as to who my heir is and where the seed of Abraham comes from. So he pays them off and they all leave. So the the, the strictness of this boundary becomes, becomes something that the nation, the Hebrew nation in this Delta region of Egypt is known for. And Egyptians are fine being intermarried. Like they they're they're fine with it. But the fact that the Hebrews wouldn't made them made them the Egyptians think that the Hebrews viewed them as second rate, like not worthy to be married to. And at some level, the Hebrews did see it that way. Those that were very religious looked at it and said, Yeah, we can't marry you. We have a direct line that is descended from Abraham, that is connected to God. And we can't just go off and marry some girl. It's, it's a fascinating study because the flip side is also true. The Egyptians, I think through offense, one of the things, they feel the same way. At, at uh, Well, we'll get into it in, a, in another verse or two. It, it, becomes, it becomes a contentious uh, position that the Hebrews are growing and growing in their um, isolation and the way that they're viewed by the Egyptians. Now they filled the Delta region, not only by living in every house that had been vacated when Joseph moved that region to a different place in order to get through the famine, but they also built up that region. They built up, you know, villages and houses and expanded the city and so as the Egyptians are watching this, as they're watching this, they're seeing that these Hebrews have more than just the ability to herd sheep and, and understand the genetics and the uh, migrations of cattle and of goats and how to breed them and how to make them stronger and, and, and the donkeys. I mean, like literally everything channeled through them. And now they're watching them expand and they're saying, wait a minute, they're engineers, they're artists, they are... Uh, um, agriculturally, they're strong. Like there's so many areas that they they could operate their own nation. Now the Hebrews are looking at it like, yes, because we are our own nation. We need to understand all these things. We need to take on these roles. But the Egyptians are are like very naturally looking at this, going, "Wow, this is a excuse me, this is a surprise. We didn't know that they could do this." Now the area of the delta that that uh, you know that they settled in 
it's it's we we have to uh let me just give you some archaeology on this because there is at times there's some confusion because of the word ramses now it says you know at the time of the pharaoh and some you know refer to the pharaoh as ramses but i'm i've i've done a lot of study on this i'm just i'm just going to say i go along with the contention uh, and you can look at this, um, probably one of the, uh, I should have brought the DVD. I watched, I watched a DVD that probably put it in the most succinct manner, but, uh, you know, Exodus exposed or something like that. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, anyways, Ramses comes, the Pharaoh Ramses comes at a later date in the in the history of Egypt. I believe that this occurred in the um uh reference da, 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 uh during uh this is before Ramsey who showed up in the middle kingdom middle Egyptian kingdom okay this is before that uh so Ramsey is not the Pharaoh but it's a reference it's also used in Genesis 47 so it's we we actually ran over it uh briefly in season season two and it's referred to in Exodus as a location in the Delta region of the Nile and that's what I believe this Ramses is is referring to and this you know the excavation and the archaeology has shown that there is a city named Ramses that was in the delta and it was it was buried in another city under pharaoh ramsey was built on top of it and i believe the reason why it was built on top of it is because the egyptians hated the hebrews and when when the pharaoh ramsey took power he flattened or buried the city that in essence the hebrews had built and that's what they did during this time of flourishing they had built it up. They had expanded it. They had improved it. And it was filled with reminders of the Hebrews being there. As a matter of fact, in this, uh, in archaeology, and again, it's conjecture that this is what it was, but they found a very uh, prominent uh, location, a very large house with a very large courtyard, not necessarily extravagant, but clearly a leader would have been there. And in the back were 12 uh, tombs, sepulchers. And, and most believe that these were, the, in essence, the 12 tribes of Israel. They were built for everyone. And Joseph's had a specific um, etching within it that seemed to indicate he was Egyptian in the way that the, the headdress and the arms were crossed. But he was, he was buried right there in the group with all the other uh, brothers. So most believe that that was Isaac's home and that uh, his sons were all buried in essence in the backyard and that that's where they went when they took Joseph out of Egypt uh, into the promised land. And that we'll get into in a little while. So all of that is just research I've done that fits what I'm talking about. So that's why I use it. I understand it's it's a it's a place of debate, and I don't want to take that opportunity away from you to to do the research, 
and to and to disagree with me, you are more than welcome to. I have no problem with that. If you've listened to anything I've said over the years, you know I don't have a problem being wrong. I'm a, I, I give myself that opportunity. I've been around long enough to know that there are many things that change over time as more archaeology is done and more research is done. And some of it is good and, and changes, you know, changes things because it's actually truth. And other times it changes and then, you know, I don't know, three, four years later, it changes back because they're like, actually, no, we were wrong. It was it was a mistake. It was a blip in the radar. Uh, we we misunder, you know, we misread the data. So I'm just telling you from my perspective, this this archaeological uh, standpoint fits well that Ramses is referring to a location like it did in Genesis, a location in the Delta, and that in the future, a pharaoh named Ramses actually rebuilds or builds a new city over the top of it, in essence, to completely wipe out the memory of the Hebrews from the nation. Now, remember that that Joseph, uh, it was it was brilliant what he did. But it was it was also very, uh, you know, looking back, I, I you kind of wish he didn't, right? At the time that Joseph was given an opportunity to step forward, when he brought up out of the prison and he sees, quote, the Pharaoh, at the time, Egypt was run by uh, 10 governors, and they, they were located all over Egypt. And again, this is this is found fairly easily if you look at uh, Egyptian history. Uh, he, he's, pulled, he's pulled out in front of the Pharaoh. He, he would have been one of those 10 governors that was in essence given the job as, uh, of Pharaoh, and it was usually given to, to them for a certain amount of time, and then it would rotate around. It was the idea that it was kind of a decentralized power place. It, it gave everyone the opportunity for input, and one person had to make the final decision, and that person was called the pharaoh. He was like the head governor. So when Joseph becomes the vice pharaoh, the other nine governors are watching this happen, and they, you know, they had given this authority to their colleague, but I have no doubt that they also were wondering, is this the right move? And should we replace it? Like there's a whole political intrigue goes that goes on with this. So over the seven years of, of expansion, or the three years of, sorry, six, oh, over the expansion years, Joseph is building up these cities. He's building up these storehouses. Like none of this is bad. And he probably built up the cities of all these various governors. So for them, it was, it was a work program. They looked like they were doing what was best for the people. Like politically, this was all working for them. And then the famine hits. And during the famine, the seven years of famine, Joseph Joseph says he starts collecting, this is key, he starts collecting these tributes and payment in the name of Pharaoh. In other words, Joseph consolidated the power of the one from the other nine. And there was really nothing the other nine could do about it. Now, keep that in mind. Because Joseph, and by relation, all those that were related to him, I mean by that, all the other relationship that he had would have been under 
a negative viewpoint by the nine governors who lost power to the one pharaoh. Because as power was consolidated, the pharaoh can basically built himself up and and began to run Egypt as a as a god, right? As the man in charge, as a dictator. This would have been there would have been some pushback, but it couldn't have been too difficult. Uh, not too. No, I don't mean difficult. What's the word? I mean aggressive. Thank you. It wouldn't have been so aggressive because these people were indebted to Joseph. They let they let the buildup come for seven years because they thought, what's the harm politically? This is really good for us. You know, the quote, Pharaoh made a wonderful decision. Joseph says, Joseph is wonderful. And if the famine doesn't happen, we can just get him kicked out. But then the famine did happen. And who took care of those other, uh, those other, other nine governors? The quote, court of Pharaoh. In essence, Joseph did. And the Pharaoh never let them forget. The Pharaoh, I'm sure, reminded them, hey, I picked Joseph. Hey, I trusted his interpretation of my dream. Hey, if I hadn't done that, none of you would be alive right now because we would have never stored up this much grain. And look at what he's done. And the power began to channel more and more to Pharaoh because if you wanted more of the provision, if you wanted more influence, you had to go to the Pharaoh to get it. And he understood that. This was that politically there's a there's a whole lot that went on in these verses meanwhile back in the delta right the families just keep growing and they're given a lot of leeway by the current by the pharaoh with joseph because well what else was he going to do he understood what joseph had done he not only had saved the nation but he had literally turned the pharaoh into what we now know as the pharaoh right that we all well, maybe not all of us, because it's an old movie. But you know, when we see, when we see the rendition of of the Pharaoh, the picture of Pharaoh in the movie The Exodus, it's uh, it's like, yeah, that's what we think of. But when Joseph started this whole uh, whole realm, when he got up out of the prison, Pharaoh was not that way. Pharaoh was not that huge. Pharaoh did not have that kind of um, exorbitant living. He was just one of 10 governors whose job it was to run the country at that time. And he made the, quote, the right choice. But by the end of it, remember Joseph for seven years, right? The first year was just a money exchange, but he received all that money for Pharaoh. Pharaoh became the wealthiest person on the planet. And then, and then it was, a, I think it was a livestock, and then it was the future crops, and then it was, or current crops. And then, it, I mean, it just went on and on. He just built up the Pharaoh <laughs> to the point where Pharaoh became what we know. And from this point, uh, archaeologically speaking, after, after Egypt falls and they're kind of overrun by marauders for a few years, right? then they run into what, what we're familiar with when we think of the Egyptian history, that Middle Egyptian kingdom where the actual Pharaoh named Ramses shows up and and that's the pharaoh that we know because he did not set up a, a group government with 10 other governors. He set it up the way that, in essence, Joseph had set it up, which blows my mind in so many ways, that Joseph set up pharaoh to be who he is, to be who we think he is. Anyways, the, 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 you know, the, the picture we have in our mind. Joseph set that all up. So by the, 
by retaliation, those who lost power, lost influence, at some level, they want that back. They want that power back, and they don't like the immigrants. They don't like how they're flourishing. They don't like how much authority they seem to have over the uh, commerce of the country because they they because they were provided for and were part of a rich you know landmass there in Egypt their crops were the ones that were selling their their livestock were the ones that everybody had to buy from so this kind of influence did not sit well with those who had lost power and and so the negative viewpoint of Hebrews the racism if you want to call it that started started long before the quote slavery did there was already a, a hard and fast uh, undercurrent of people in Egypt that did not like the Hebrews and did not want them around. But politically, it was very, very difficult to go against them while there were any relatives of Joseph available. Because after, you know, if they pushed, the relatives of Joseph would show up and remind everybody what Joseph had done and remind everyone how they, the Hebrews, had fed the country, how they, the Hebrews, had kept the country afloat through the livestock and, and, and the opportunity for everyone to rebuild. So keep all that in mind when we come to the introduction of Moses being a Hebrew. It was no small thing that he was a Hebrew and his whole journey into the, quote, you know, royalty of Egypt, there would have been a hard and fast, nasty political climate for him to push back against. But that's for another episode, right? Because, my goodness, you can't, you can't tell the whole story in one session. Then you would just be a normal, everyday Sunday morning preacher who crams way too much into too small a period of time, and we miss so many fun details. So the Egyptians are getting their lives back after the famine. They're getting their lives back. They're starting to expand back into the cities that they had been moved from. And, and uh, you know, Pharaoh, and he had never wanted for anything during the famine. He was able to have it as an extravagant of life as he wanted to have because, because Joseph made sure that that happened for him. The priests of all the various idols all were able to have plenty of provision under Pharaoh, uh, under, under Joseph. They never wanted for anything. And, the, and Pharaoh's cabinet, the other nine of, and probably a few others, uh, they didn't want for anything, but but Pharaoh, Pharaoh, in essence, made sure that they knew that what they had, excuse me, I just I just hit the microphone. What they had was because of of his graciousness. I don't know if you've ever been around a leader that likes to remind people that if it wasn't for them, they wouldn't be as well off as they are. But that's the type of thing I think Pharaoh engaged in when it came to those that were left in his court. And, and that's why if they wanted to continue to be provided for, in essence, extravagantly above what a normal person would get, if they wanted a, a seat in the courtroom or courtroom, sorry, in the courts of Pharaoh, they had to play along and they had to be at the whim of the Pharaoh. So it created this culture again, 
where they they hid their hatred for Joseph. They hid their hatred for the Hebrews because Pharaoh loved them. It's nothing any other politician doesn't do on a regular basis and, and continues to do until, you know, throughout today even. I imagine even at this, the listening of this episode, <laughs> there are politicians who are playing these games. So uh, uh, Pharaoh, right, he cared for those he loved and he didn't care for those he didn't love. Now, those he didn't love also took that out on the fact that the Hebrews were in town. So politically, they're, they're starting, I'm sure, starting to find friends in and amongst the common people who don't like the Hebrews. Now, the, the, the majority of the, of the displaced people, the people that had been moved from one city to another, they lost everything but their lives. Their housing, their food, their water was all provided by the government, quote, the government, but really they knew it was provided by Joseph in the name of Pharaoh, the one, not the nine others, but the one. So as they're moving back to their town and they're planting their crops and they're, you know, they're paying a tax, they didn't pay as steep of a tax as, as foreign countries, but they all had to pay a tax on their harvest, right? They were borrowing on the future worth of their flocks and of their livestock and of their harvests in order to start again. And the Hebrews were the ones that were making all the money. Not all of it. Mostly it was Pharaoh but and the government. But the Hebrews were benefiting from all of that negotiation, all of that um, barter, barter, bartering and borrowing on the future of the crops and, and livestock. So their houses, their, their health, their influence, their population just continued to explode as people were moving back. So when we read in verse Six. Now Joseph and all his brothers and, and all that generation, all that 70, died. It's, it's, it's a key phrase, right, in the story, because what the author is saying, this is when something turned. When the last relative died, something shifted. And that's very important for us to note. The influence and power of Pharaoh's court was going to come into play like it had never come into play before. So it says in verse uh, verse 8, Then a new king, whom Joseph meant nothing to, came to power in Egypt. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that he didn't know Joseph. It's not like he was ignorant of what had happened. What it means, in general, is that there was a new pharaoh, i.e., or as equally contained within those words, is there was new policy. It doesn't mean that he wasn't known or not remembered or, or uh, you know, no longer... Um, no longer, uh, yeah, I guess remembered. Sorry, I know. I stumbled there pretty bad, didn't I? What it means is that, that this new policy did not care that Joseph was there or that his relatives had moved in. In other words, everything he had done, they appreciated, but now they were going to consolidate all of that into Egypt and no longer have it be because 
the Hebrews were here. Now, they couldn't do that while the original ones were alive, but now that they're all dead, it was very easy for the government, a new government, a new pharaoh to step in and say, okay, we're going to have a new policy. And the concern was this in verse 9. Look, he said to his people, those around him, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous and if war breaks out, will join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. His fear wasn't, wasn't unfounded. That's what I was trying to illustrate earlier. There was already a, an ethnic a racial divide between the Egyptians and the Hebrews. There was already this, this undercurrent of hatred and mistrust between the two races. They didn't like each other. And now with one of them, who was the immigrants, who didn't belong in this country, who came from a place where literally they didn't own any land anyway. Like, you have to understand how far back the idea of immigration comes from. These people own nothing. They, they lived in, the, in Canaan. They didn't own any land there. And then they moved to Egypt and were given land. They don't own this land either. It all belongs to Egypt. See, the Egyptians start to think this. Everything they have is because of us. They've been trying to make us think that everything we have is because of them. No, no, no. That's not how it goes. And they shift the dynamic of the conversation to, if it wasn't for us, they, they wouldn't be alive. And that shift had to be, had to be pretty um, devastating to get a hold of. Pharaoh sees these, the, the Hebrews and he goes, these guys are powerful. They have connections all over the world. And if, if we allow these people who won't integrate with us, who won't worship our gods, who won't allow us to live in their cities, who keep all this, all of our livestock and all the seeds for our crops, this, these, peop these people are far more important and influential than, than they should be. We have, to, we have to deal shrewdly with them. Because look at any other nation comes in, they literally could negotiate with, the, with what is now probably considered a small nation. They could negotiate with them behind our backs. We'd have no idea. They can make an agreement that if, if a, an enemy of ours decides to attack us, <clears throat> what's what if the, what maybe they don't even fight for us? Maybe they just sit back and say, "Listen, you let us live here, you know, we'll let you in, we'll let you down the river." Listen, I mean, honestly, guys, listen to the strategy. The enemy could come in on boats through the delta, right through the Ramses area of the of the land of Egypt. And by the time the Egyptians know about it, they would already be divided. The country would already be divided and the land would already be under attack. Like this, honestly, it's not, it's not paranoia for Pharaoh to think this. Most, right, most people in high places of authority in any nation have to think at some level, they have to think defensively. And they look at the Hebrews as a, as a huge liability when it comes to the defense of the nation. This is about national security. <laughs> How many things have been 
have been put on people because of, quote, national security. Holy smokes. Wow, what a thing to consider, right? So I don't think, I mean, I know I know this pharaoh, whatever his name is, gets a lot of, you know, he doesn't remember Joseph, you know, you can't forget the goodness of God or you do bad things. No, like this just makes sense. He looks at it as a, at an immigrant nation who owns no land and and how easily they could be influenced by anybody else because they own nothing. What if another nation comes in and said, listen, you let us through, we'll attack Egypt, we'll give you this whole delta as your own country. How how enticing would that be for the Hebrews to consider? And the Pharaoh, like it doesn't take much for any Egyptian to consider this and, and understand that this could be a serious liability. So in the name of national defense, they decide to start a plan of slavery. And that's what it means when they deal shrewdly with them or they will become more numerous. And if war breaks out, join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. So they have they have to do a multi-prong uh, containment concept to start putting up boundaries, to start bringing these people, quote, under control. This slavery plan was not one day, you know, the army of Egypt comes in and starts beating on people and making them make bricks and build the pyramids. Let's let's just just please put that out of your mind. Put that out of your mind because it's not how that's not how slavery happens. Slavery always happens slow and steady. Always happens slow and steady. And when they when they shifted their their mindset, when they said to the Hebrews, "Listen, you wouldn't be alive if it wasn't for us. You wouldn't be living here if it wasn't for us." Joseph worked for us, and now you work for us. They began to require a certain level of work as a, quote, tax to show loyalty to Egypt and to help rebuild the nation after the famine. They looked at what the Hebrews had built, and they said, look, at you You have engineers, you have carpenters, you have all of these uh, talented people. You're going to, you have the privilege of living in Egypt, so you are going to help Egypt rebuild. And in the name of loyalty, they began to adhere. I mean, think about it. The Jews had nowhere to go. They could have just packed, you know, in their head, they're like, what are we going to do? Pack up and leave? We're just going to get on our, our carts and walk out of the country? Like, this is a pretty good life we have here. We have beautiful homes. We have beautiful weather. We have beautiful families, large families. So they paid the tax, and the taxes kept increasing. Shocking, right? What are the odds that a government would increase taxes on people in order to control them? And then they began to take some of their freedoms away by controlling their movements. Not only did they require work from them and and require them to commit to building the nation but they required the certain certain age groups of men to be involved because they didn't want young men getting married and making big families. They required the younger men to be the ones who had to leave the city and go work elsewhere in the country in order to benefit the Egyptians. So in essence, they could start to control the birth rate of the Hebrews. They began to control the education of the Hebrews. They had, you know, again, 
They had pretty much freedom. All fr- It was all freedom to them. And they began to say, listen, the Egyptians are the ones who get priority when it comes to school. If there's room afterwards, then the Hebrews can have their own, you know, can, can join us. Now, the Hebrews' answer to that was to have their own schools, and they studied the Torah, and they basically became even more isolated in their mindsets because they weren't a part of any Egyptian schools. But they would give preference. You know, they let the Hebrews know, listen, the preferential education is going to go to the Egyptians. Now, the Egyptians, you know, library, their educational system, their understanding of engineering and and, uh, art and all that is massive. And I don't take that away at all. They They were brilliant people. But they began, uh, you know, putting pressure on the boundaries, so to speak, of the Hebrews and limiting their movement, limiting their thoughts, limiting their ability to get educated because the young men, as young as, you know, eight and nine, would have to go work in order to live, in essence, pay rent, if you want to call it, or pay the tax back to, back to Egypt in reparations for being given the most choice land in all the nations. They began to limit the births. They would tell tell the Hebrews they were only allowed to have so many children because of population uh, numbers. It was too great. The land could have, couldn't sustain two nations, right? In the name of, of uh, what do they call it? Uh, not controversy. Conservation. Bob's like, conservation! Yes, I know. You're right, Bob. Conservation. Uh, they, would, they, they limited the births. And then they eliminated... Uh, not a, well. Ultimately, they go to and, and eliminate male births, but that shows up at a at another time. But that's the direction they're heading. Any way that they can, they can slow the growth rate of these of quote these people, this ethnic race, this demographic needs to be shut down in order for our nation to thrive. In the name of national security, in the name of public health, we need to control these people. I mean, this idea of slavery has been around for a long time, people. Many governments have have uh, entered into it, and uh, ours has entered into it a number of times too. So let's not let's not pretend that you know Pharaoh's the big bad guy. Pharaoh's doing what any national leader would do, who isn't controlled by by his character and his connection to an all loving, all good God, who who is out of sync a leader who's out of sync with the identity and destiny and purpose that God has given him. So as, as the restrictions go, they restrict ownership of businesses and where the businesses can be lo- located. They, they don't allow them to, you know, to have livestock outside of a certain aspect. Uh, they, they can only have so much land. They can only grow so much food. In essence, they ultimately become... Uh, they they allow them to to become like self sufficient, and then they see start even taking that away. So they they forbid them from moving in and out of the country without permission. They can't speak to other nations. They can't. Uh, Egyptians are now a part of every trade negotiation. It has to be approved through permits. Right, <laughs> the whole permitting system in the, in this country is all designed for what? For control and for money and to slow the process of freedom. Now, you could say, well, Bob, you don't want to be in a building that doesn't have permits. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying it was put in place to what? To control freedom in the name of safety, 
in the name of national security. It's the same here in Egypt. Uh, Hebrews were always referred to as, you know, outsiders, the, that group, the Hebrews, the, the, I don't know, they pro- I'm sure they had some nasty nickname for them. Their wealth was always remembered as something that Egypt gave them. We gave them your, you know, their wealth. They're, they only have that because we, we allowed it, but now we're taking it back because it belongs to us. It belongs to the government. They actually stole it from it. Like the, the rhetoric would have keep, would have, would not just would have, it just keeps getting more and more aggressive and fear-based. And, and now the Hebrews are thieves and, you know, this was their plan all along, and now they want to take over our country. We need to keep them in control. And the Egyptians buy into that, right? It's easy. The Egyptians buy into this fear that there's this nation of people who weren't invited, who showed up because of, of a relative of theirs, but they took the best, they took it, uh, the best of the land. They now, they you know, they took control of the livestock. They took control of the agriculture, and they... They tried to beat us into submission. Well, now we're going to beat them into submission. And the Jews, at, at, at some level, again, they had nowhere to go. They had no real leader. The original crew was all dead. And the elders of the people, basically, as we, as we will observe, their basic role was keep the peace. Keep the peace. Uh, give up freedom, give up a little bit more freedom, give up a little bit of wealth. We all have plenty. We all did very well. It's okay for the family, for the sake of your health, for the sake of, of compliance to the new mandates in order, right? <coughs> we'll show our loyalty. They'll be nice to us. They didn't want to be labeled as a threat. We don't like the negative uh, you know, ramifications of the, of the words that they use. We need to be careful. We need to, we need to bide our time. We need to like there's all kinds of ways that in essence they didn't resist giving up their freedoms. They traded the freedoms in order in order to try and stay comfortable. And that comfort meant some of us work harder than others. Some of us have more are going to lose some of our wealth. But listen, if we all give a little, then we'll all get along. Like there's I'm sure lots of ways that they slid into slavery. And I'm also very confident it didn't happen overnight. It didn't happen overnight. Man, there is, there is, there is, uh, well, well, we're not, yeah, I'm not going to keep going. We're going to end it right there at, uh, at verse 10. We've got a lot to continue building to understand the culture that ultimately leads to ultimate slavery and to the conditions in which Moses was born. It's very important. It really is to the overall story. And it, it still plays into the whole sacrificial system. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I'm, already, I'm already in too deep. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for listening. I appreciate you being here on episode one of season three of the Epic Narrative. Don't go anywhere. We've got Bob Thoughts. Well, welcome back to my thoughts. This is crazy. I don't know if you know it. You should know it. But if you don't know it, I do have a Facebook page called Bob Thoughts. And on it, 
are much longer, not much, 5, 10, 15-minute thoughts on all kinds of subjects, mostly around church and ministry and and relationships, uh, that sort of thing. It's kind of what my mind works around all the time. Uh, so, yeah, if you're interested, check that out. Facebook page, Bob Thoughts. Um, but we add these thoughts at the end of each episode because I generally have more thoughts than what I can share, even as long as we go. Crazy but true. Today, I just I just can't get around the idea, or not around the idea, but the verse that says in, in Genesis that, that we just finished, right, season two, that by the time the end of the famine had occurred, everyone was enslaved. All the Egyptians were enslaved to Pharaoh. They owed owed him or owed that you know the the, the position of Pharaoh. They owed Egypt their lives. They owed them. Uh, the, Egypt owned all the land. Egypt owned all the livestock. Egypt lo- owned all of the uh, crops, all the seeds. Like they owned it all. And then the the people coming out of famine had to make arrangements then to plant and 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 to grow and to breed. And they would they had to leverage their long term. Like it was it was a major debt. They were enslaved to Egypt. And Joseph set that up. Joseph set them up to be enslaved. The only ones that weren't enslaved was Joseph's family. So by the time we open up in Genesis, uh, uh, Exodus, sorry, by the time we, we open up Exodus, we have an immigrant family that probably came in around, I think I, we're guessing 500 people, maybe a, maybe close to 1,000 by the time everybody got there. But so they've been, they've been working the livestock for, uh, for Egypt, all of it. They're in charge of all the breeding. They're in charge of who who buys and who doesn't. They're in charge of the of the um, the, the market, the, the transportation, the trade. All of it is centered around them. They do it all in the name of Pharaoh, but they're not enslaved by to Pharaoh. They are independent, and in essence, Egypt has to be. Uh, subservient to the Hebrews for years. So the Hebrews have, you know, they're having babies, they're growing their families, they're expanding their villages and their cities. And and it's it's a big deal, the fact that this, this immigrant nation, by the time we get to Exodus, this is a nation of people that have no land, whose father came from far away in Babylon, and and they have nowhere to go, and that's the mindset that the that the Pharaoh that quote didn't remember Joseph. In other words, I, I know I know we covered this, but he's looking around and his politics and his and his policymakers are like, why are we serving these people? They they should be serving us. Where can they where are they gonna go? They can't go anywhere. So they did they did what all politicians do, and I believe they slowly over time. In, in exchange for safety, in exchange for convenience, in exchange for uh, comfort, Hebrews started to give up their freedoms and give up their advantages, and ultimately they end up enslaved by Egypt. And they, uh, it's true, they have nowhere to go. And now there's so many of them that organizing a place to go is just insane. 
it's not it's not like the immigration that that like the United States deals with because most people that that come into our country legal or illegal generally come from another country and theoretically could go back to that country I, I understand there's usually other reasons why they came but but I'm just broad brush here um, the Hebrews had nowhere else to go even if they went back to Canaan they, they don't have any land they don't they're not from a country it's a fascinating study I really hope you guys uh, let that sink in because man it, it impacts I think the way things go uh, for a long time to come. Now, we have something new this, this year on uh, the Epic Narrative. We have an opportunity for you to give. We, uh, we at the Epic Narrative, we have financial needs. <laughs> As those of you who have followed season two, you know that I have been out of a job now for over a year. Uh, the podcast does not make any money. We need about, you know, 100,000 followers for that to happen. And, and that is that has not happened. Uh, but we can really use your help. If you like what we do, it'd be great if you could help us out. There's a link in the description of the podcast. You can click it and give to us. Now, you're going to click and it's going to say Revive the Way. What is Revive the Way? Revive the Way is another thing that I do that's also uh, free of charge. But Revive the Way is a fabulous organization that helps uh, organize, train, and bring um, connection to people who either want to start a house church or have a house church but have nowhere to go. So many of these uh, house church leaders, for me, they remind me of like entrepreneurs. They, they're passionate about reaching their community. They're passionate about how much they love God and love Jesus, and they just, wanted, they just want to do it outside of the business as usual church that they have been a part of for years. A lot of them still go to big churches, but they want to do something more significant. And I help train them. I help facilitate uh, their their pastoring of their people, if you want to call it. Um, and just, it's, it's a ton of fun for me to be around those kind of people. I love hope-filled, creative, problem-solving people. And generally speaking, everyone I meet that is starting a house church or has a house church thinks in those manners. So I, I help revive the way and I do this podcast and it's really all I got. And so anything you can give to help us out would be awesome. I, I really need a new computer before we can start uh, doing season four. Uh, my computer no longer gets updates. That's how old it is. Uh, the laptop is like every time I try to open up an app now, it's like, uh, there's not enough memory. We, you know, blah, 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 you, you know what I'm talking about? Anyways, we, we could use a new computer. Uh, my phone's the same way. It no longer can take updates. Uh, so yeah, we, we have, we have some needs before we can, uh, roll with, uh, with any more seasons of the Epic Narrative. We would love to have your help. Click the link, give what you can, and I'll see you again next week on The Epic Narrative. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to this podcast on any platform you use. You can also reach out to Bob for questions or booking at thebobswitzer.com or email him at thebobswitzer at gmail.com. See you next week, guys. Bye.